morning we look at so great a salvation and you're going to notice that Peter is going to build the foundation of his whole book built on what Christ has done for us. And so he starts that way with a look at a great salvation. I know many of you are aware of Dave Ramsey and he's known as a financial guru. I think a lot of us have taken his financial course or at least you've heard of them. Uh, years ago, this is over, oh, probably 15 years ago, Heather and I were taking one of his courses at the church we were at, and, uh, and I remembered something, I, I remember more than just this that he taught, but I do remember this. He was teaching about, obviously, how to be financially secure and how to invest, and he shared a story or a desire that he had. He mentioned an individual that he said he would pay good money just to be able to sit down and glean from that man's experience. He, he kind of tied that into the value in talking and listening to people who've, had, who've succeeded in their field, who've lived it out, who have been successful. So I'm thinking, here's the guy I'm coming to hear talk about finances, teaching me to pay someone else to hear, that he would pay someone else to hear talk and learn more. And, and it, his point was made because he's saying this, you need to seek opportunity to learn from the experts, to listen to their insight, to grow from their experience, no matter how established you are. He was saying this from a position of success, saying, I, I would sit down, I would pay good money to have lunch with him. And his encouragement was take successful people out to lunch and glean from their experience. First and second Peter is an open conversation with someone spiritually just like that. You have a chance, in essence, to sit down with the Apostle Peter. As he says, an Apostle of Jesus Christ, as he shares the wisdom gained from a life of ministry and service. Here is an expert used by the Holy Spirit to tell us about life and how we live the Christian life, to help us walk through uh, the pain and pressure that comes with this life, to, to keep our mind fixed on the goal, to keep our mind fixed on our inheritance, to keep our mind fixed on Christ, of being his ambassador, of living life for him. Here is someone who walked on earth with our Savior. He was the designated spokesperson of the disciples. Oftentimes, the Lord would address Peter as if he was addressing the whole group. He's a man that stumbled. Let's be honest, he struggled but he grew each time. When we read about Peter, I think all of us are reminded of ourselves and we're able to connect to him. I think it was about two years ago, Trenton was reading through Matthew and he asked Heather this question. He says, Mom, does Peter end up being a good guy? Because he's reading through Matthew and Peter is just blowing it, right? He's, he's the guy that cuts ears off he says bombastic statements that he has to get corrected for. He ends up denying the Lord. And Trenton was concerned about the ending for Peter. But why is he so concerned? Because Peter is so relatable. Peter's real. Now, all the apostles are real and all of them are, are examples for us to follow. But Peter looks like us, doesn't he? We enjoy his bravado, if we're being honest. When I hear him talking out and putting his foot in his mouth, I look out and say, wow, we're a class full of Peters, aren't we? That's just, that's who we are. Peter is, is how we think and how we function. He's impulsive. And we enjoy that because he seems to be like us. He seems to be a regular Joe. 
Well, I just want to fast forward us because we fixate oftentimes on how he wrestled and how he grew and all those are important steps. But he's now in his 70s writing this letter, likely between 62 and 64 AD. Most people think it's just before or immediately after July AD 64 when a fire destroyed much of Rome. A fire that was set by Emperor Nero, one, because he was insane, two, because he wanted to rebuild it to be pretty. So great leader there. Uh, There was a lot of pushback. So all of Rome assumes Nero, the lunatic, has set the fire. And so what does he do? He shifts the blame on to Christians, which prompted a heavy wave of persecution and suffering. And so Peter is writing to a church in the middle of that. Now, the persecution and suffering, why could Nero blame the church? Because people are already getting sick of Christians, and we'll talk about that. The political and social climate was changing in Rome. They were tired of the believers. And so here is Peter writing to churches that are about to face a wave of heavy persecution and are already feeling the pressure from persecution. He's lived a full ministry life. He knows the cost of discipleship, and he wants the church to understand that they, what they have in Christ and what they may face for being in Christ. A tradition states that Peter uh, is killed, martyred in this wave of persecution. Supposedly, he was crucified upside down. And I, I read recently, after watching his wife be crucified, and said, I don't, I don't deserve to be crucified right side up. And so, though we don't have a biblical record of it, the historical record shares that he's going to walk all the way to the end and die a martyr's death in this persecution. Paul also dies in the midst of this persecution over the next few years. He's writing from the city of Rome. If you read in 1 Peter, he refers to it by the code name Babylon, which is used through Scripture, 1 Peter 5.13. He's there shortly after Paul is released from prison. So if you've been in adult Bible fellowships, you know Paul ends up in jail in Rome. Well, he gets released this first time. And before Peter arrives, Paul has left the city. And so you're going to find Peter there, but you're going to find people that are connected with Paul connected with Peter because Silas or Silvanus, it's the same as Silas, Uh, who is working with Paul, who has traveled with Paul on his missionary journeys, is going to be here to help transcribe the letter from Peter. He's going to be the one who's going to go out to those churches and deliver it, which makes sense considering the fact that he was one of the people that helped plant those churches. He's writing to churches that are located in Asia Minor. And to place that in our context, modern-day Turkey. Uh, he, He gives that list in verse 1. It's about five areas, and that's not just the five areas that he's going to be in. It really is a roadmap on how the letter is going to be distributed. So Silas is going to go to a church. He's going to read this letter. They're going to copy that letter, and he's going to go on to the next area. And all the cities and towns in between, they're going to do the same thing, showing us how this this letter is going to be broadcast out to the churches in that area. The people in these churches are a mixture of both Jewish and Gentile believers who are facing a growing hostility to the faith, which would have been originating from Rome. So you have this Rome is catalyzing now what they've already been feeling. And this is the reality. (coughs) The ruling government of the world is no longer neutral to the faith. They're no longer okay with Christianity. 
See, up until this point, as we were growing through the first century, before we're getting to this area, so in the 40 ADs and the 50 ADs, there's a sense of protection from the Roman government. They accepted Judaism and they accepted Christianity. Well, they're done accepting monotheistic religion because they're seeing it as a problem now. And so what you're seeing in the churches as the ruling world government that would have been over these churches is now no longer neutral. They're negative towards them, which is the reality, by the way, that we face. And I'm hoping as, as I'm walking through this that you can see that First and Second Peter always spoke to the church in every age, but very specifically during ours, we're seeing the same realities that they we're facing. Riken's Bible handbook notes this, hostility directed against Christians is more and more prominent in the media, which I think we see that, in academics, which that's not hard, walk into any college class and you'll hear it, in public settings. In their era, in this first century church at 64 AD, people then were becoming suspicious of believers and they were being reviled and persecuted for their lifestyle. Does that sound familiar? and conversation about another kingdom. They're loyal to God. And if you're Roman, you're loyal only to Rome. And I put here, it sounds like something we can relate to, does it not? So this is the church that Peter's writing to. Persecution is happening and it's about to get worse. Yet they and we are able to live for Christ even in the midst of hostility Actually, as MacArthur notes, Peter wished to impress on his readers that by living an obedient, victorious life under duress, a Christian can actually evangelize his hostile world. Peter's not just talking about surviving. He's talking about winning. He's talking about being successful ambassadors for Christ. He's telling the church there not to hole up, but instead to realize that they have an opportunity to reach their world. In addition to that, he's going to cover so many virtues and vices that it becomes that summary of how to live the Christian life. He's going to talk on topics of holiness. He's going to talk about setting aside our former life. He's going to walk through what it means to grow in Christ. So keep that background in mind. Now we come to the beginning of his letter and recognize that Peter, with that purpose in mind as we walk through, is now going to give you what is of first importance. This is the grounding principle to everything he's about to say as he walks believers through how they grapple with life. And, and central to that, central to what he's saying, is our first assurance in Christ. If you look at verses 1 and 2, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And I hope you recognize that the whole Godhead is represented in that one verse. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. So Peter identifies himself. It always amazes me that people argue whether Peter wrote this or not. He says he wrote it. It's there in the Bible. But if you're going to be anti-Scripture, you can argue what is blatantly put in front of you. Uh, Peter identifies himself as an apostle, which is one sent out on a mission, Christ ambassador. And he writes to those, as he calls them, strangers. And the word in Greek means exiles. What is an exile? That is someone who's away from their home, living in a foreign land, someone who's actually got to put down roots. They're not a visitor. 
This idea of being in exile is, is how Israel was when they were exiled to Babylon and they're going to buy houses and start businesses. You're there, but it's not where you're from. It's not your home. Who are they? They're God's children living in their temporal location while waiting for their final home. We are exiles. That's what Peter's telling us. You're there. You're putting down roots. You have a house. You have a business. You have a family. You have life. But this is not where you belong permanently. And so he starts his whole letter by connecting them to the kingdom and family of God and then immediately turns to show them how they are intricately connected to that kingdom, how they're intricately connected to God. And it's seen in verse 2 in their salvation. See, verse 2 shows clearly the active involvement of God in salvation. Don't miss that point. Peter is speaking to a church, and I'll mention this later, who, who for the first time for some of these people are facing persecution. And they're starting to doubt their salvation. They're wondering, am I saved? Is this what it means to be a Christian? Am I doing something wrong? Why is Rome upset with me? Why are people hating on me? Why would people feel this way towards me because I'm a believer? Does it mean I'm not really a believer? Is this really something worth believing in? And so Peter is going to drive to this point of salvation, and he wants them to see something. God is actively involved in your salvation. Every person of the Godhead functions through all of time in redeeming the lost. Redemption is not just something God does. It is something he is. He is redemptive in his character. And our connection, our belonging to the kingdom of God rests securely. This is the point. The assurance of Christ rests securely upon his involvement and working. So you'll notice with Peter, he's going to emphasize what Christ does, what God the Father does, what the Holy Spirit does, so we understand how secure we are as his children. For instance, God the Father, Peter says, of him, the church are the elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So one thing you know out of the gate is we're not an afterthought in the Father's thinking, but instead occupied his mind for all eternity, both past, present, and future. And you'll see it, and we'll talk through a little bit in Ephesians. God wasn't surprised by sin at all. God thought of redemption before he created time, people, world, anything. God was thinking of redemption. We are not an afterthought. As MacArthur notes, God has chosen people out of all the world to belong to him, and the church is that people. That's what Peter's trying to say to them. You're God's children, He's thought of you before you existed. Peter is saying emphatically to the churches in Asia, you are God's people. You belong to him. Again, assurance in Christ. Who do you belong to? I belong to God. Why do I belong to God? Because he knew you. What a reassuring truth. I am God's, not by chance, but by his will and purpose. My security rests in him and his will. I'm not swayed by the circumstance. That's what Peter's trying to tell him. You're not moved. This, the needle doesn't move just because you're facing something new in this life, because your world hates you, because they arrest you, because they don't buy from your business, because they burn your business down, because they kick you out of their house, because they won't invite you to their parties. 
That doesn't change your status because you belong to God by his will and by his purpose. He then moves to the work of God, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Here we see involvement through the sanctification of the Spirit. As believers, they, and let's be honest, we know with certainty the working of the Spirit in and upon our lives. What does sanctified mean? It means you're set apart by the Spirit. He has actively worked upon us. And and I, I keep saying this, as believers, we can attest to this, right? We know that the Holy Spirit works in and upon our lives. And so he's accomplished a setting part of work and it's unto obedience. The sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit is unto obedience, which is speaking of faith in Christ for salvation. The Holy Spirit works to produce faith. The Holy Spirit accomplished that in us. When we pray for the conviction of souls, when we pray for people to be saved, just Trace back in your mind, how do we word this? We pray that he, the Holy Spirit, will work on the hearts of them, convicting them of sin and righteousness. Almost every person that stands up to pray before church, is they, if they're going to reference the lost, they're going to pray that the Spirit will work and convict their life. John 16, 8 through 11 states concerning the Holy Spirit. And when he has come, he will reprove, that's the word for convict, the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they believe not on me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. And I just want you to realize what is the result of his convicting work unto obedience, unto faith which is, and now we come to the third person, centered in the person of God the Son, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Here is our Lord and Savior who has accomplished our redemption. And let me we remind us, what is redemption? It is the buyback. So now all of, of salvation, we see that it's in the purpose and will of God the Father. We see the Holy Spirit working, setting apart with a purpose, not just random. He's not just convicting for any reason. He convicts so that we'll believe. He convicts unto faith. And then it's driven to that person of salvation, and it's our Lord and Savior who has bought us back on the cross by the shedding of his blood, and let's be honest, in place of ours. There was a cost to buying us back, and it's death. We owe God, death for our sin. The wages of sin is death. And so Christ has come and bought us back. And then it says, by the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And that speaks to being identified in Christ. We look at his shed blood, and this is the word for sprinkled. And so you understand it's, it's referring back to the Old Testament. When the blood was sprinkled on the people, it symbolized their intention to obey God's law. The, the Israelites, when Moses sprinkles them, they're saying, my intention is to be identified as God's people. I am committed to God. I'm submitting to his command and his direction. As believers sprinkled with Christ's blood, we are setting aside our self-governance and submitting to Jesus's governance. We submit to his reign and rule upon our lives. That's what it means by you have faith in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit convicts us. So we have faith in Jesus Christ to trust in him for the forgiveness of sins. And then he adds into there in that process, it's not just a casual exchange, but instead we're sprinkled with his blood, symbolizing the fact that we are committing to him 
to be obedient to him, we are saying to the world, I belong to Christ. Salvation is a change of identity from serving me to serving him. We covenant with him to be his people, and nothing could be better than that. So Peter starts his letter assuring the churches of their security in Christ. They don't need a doubt to whom they belong. And so he says at the end of this first verse or second verse, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. You see, as one writer notes, to be reminded that they were elected by God was a great comfort to those persecuted Christians. They should not see their suffering as evidence of a different standing with God. They're not supposed to see pain or struggles in the faith as saying, well, I must not be saved. I'm wrestling with something, so I must not know Christ as my Savior. I'm not redeemed. What happens when we start to doubt? We usually revert back to us and think about us. And Peter says, I don't want you to think about you. Who saved you? Christ saved you. His work, not your work. And their ultimate security, even in the face of persecution and suffering, was in God's hands. And that's the point Peter is driving to. As you look at what God has done and the whole Godhead for your salvation, he wants you to land on one thing, assurance in Christ. Here is the reality of our salvation. It is secure in Jesus Christ. It cannot be removed. The situations we face, and I put this in here, even the mental hurdles and wrestling that take place in your own mind, your own doubts, Your own statements to yourself cannot remove you from God's hands. If you've trusted in Christ for forgiveness of sins, you are held by him. You're not holding on. And that's what Peter is trying to tell the church. You are in God's hands. No matter what you think and no matter what doubts pass through your mind or no matter what things flitter through there, I'd hate to see all of our thoughts painted on a board. I'd hate to see mine on the board up here. Because we all have these things that go through our mind and they feel like they're condemning us and it makes us feel like we're not saved and Peter is screaming to them, but you're secure in Christ. You know him. God has been intricately involved in your salvation. He doesn't stand at a distance looking down his proverbial nose at us like we're some interesting experiment saying, huh, I wonder what they may do. No, our God chose to engage with us. When you go to Christmas and you see the incarnation, that is God involved in humanity. That is not a God standing back saying, I wonder what may or may not happen. It's a God saying, I am going to engage with my creation. He chose to redeem us and he did so with complete involvement. What does that tell us? The same thing it said to those first century believers, that this great salvation is so great because it comes from God, emanating from every person of the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit involved in salvation. This great salvation is so great because God remains intricately involved in it. Let me walk you through a little bit of Ephesians 1. It has been his plan before the foundation of the world, long before we were created. Ephesians 1, 4, God was redemptive. And I I say that because 
God doesn't just redeem. God is redemptive. It is part of his character. Just like we say, God, it's not that God just loves us. God is love. God is not just just. God is just. He is the embodiment of it. And so God, as part of his characteristic, is redemptive. We oftentimes say, well, God loved us, so he redeemed us. God redeemed us because he's redemptive. That's why he redeemed us. And he also is love and he's also justice. It involved the son coming to die for our sins, to rise in victory over sin and death. The son in whom we have trusted. Ephesians 1, 10 through 12 talks about that. So we start there with the father and then we go to the son and it says, you've trusted in him. You've believed in him. This is who your faith rests in. And then you move on and that salvation is sealed for all eternity, future by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. So salvation has been God's plan from eternity past to eternity future. And I think it's a healthy exercise sometimes to think about eternity past because it's hard to comprehend. It's what the scientists cannot explain. It is impossible. You want to trip up any atheist, you tell them to start somewhere. Because something had to exist for all eternity and you realize that God's plan of salvation has existed for all eternity. And it will be secured into eternity. Peter begins the letter showing the believers the depth of their salvation. He reassures the true church that they are not part of this world, but instead belong to God's kingdom. They are his children, not by chance, but instead through God who works out his redemptive plan from eternity past through eternity future. What's the point? All the things that the world is bringing in, the persecution, the doubts they create. And I've said it over and over, and I want you to realize the church is in Asia Minor and the churches around the world are, are wrestling right now. They're wondering about all this pressure and are they truly his children? Is this truly the truth? And that pressure and those doubts are seen as nothing now in light of the grand eternity he has planned and made possible for those who believe in him. We rest assured in him and that what he has done and not in ourselves and what we do. I put this in green Sharpie pen that I highlighted with. My identity in Christ hangs on the cross and not on myself. Because it's not about me, it's about him. And, and verse two is driving us to pin our hope to the cross. This gives us peace in the midst of turmoil, whether outside of us or inside our mind. This gives us confidence to live for him. Satan loves nothing more than to cast doubt on someone's true salvation. He would love to undermine every Christian's assurance in Christ. His goal, as, as Peter is confronting that through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Satan's goal is to take those churches and put doubt in their mind. Why? What does doubt do to us? Well, it makes us quiet. It makes us pliable. It makes us bland when it comes to proclaiming Christ. Because when you doubt your salvation, you don't proclaim it. When you doubt your salvation, you don't fight this world and what it does to you. When you doubt your salvation, you can be moved by every wind of doctrine that comes your way. And so Peter, and I hope you can see it in verse 2, is saying, you are secure in Christ. We need the rock-solid assurance of knowing we are in Christ. So after he clarifies 
our great assurance in Christ, Peter now moves to look at the abundance in Christ. This is three uh, through five. It says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, three through five, or at least three is a hymn of praise. This is a song. Um, and we read this in Sunday school and Tim Wagner said he wouldn't sing it and I'm not going to sing it to you either. All right. So just to not torture your ears, but I do want you in your mind to realize that Peter is shouting out praise right now. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And if you can't catch anything, catch the fact that Peter can't stop talking about Jesus and his victory over sin and death. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And so Peter begins his shout of praise. You are assured in Christ. And then he says, blessed be, and goes on to extol the abundant reality of our salvation and life in Christ. He called on them to sing a hymn of praise as they examined their abundance in Christ, to look past their hostile world and current struggles and situations and instead rejoice in their eternal inheritance. Something we need to do as well, right? Sing out, blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter sang that out. Why? Because he adored his God and he adored his Savior. Which makes us think a second, right? Do we adore our Lord and Savior? Do we adore him enough that we cannot help but shout out about it? Because Peter, in, his, in a very conversational way, he hasn't given any commands yet. He hasn't pushed on them. He's just sitting down. This is lunch in your mind. You're sitting down for coffee or lunch, and he's talking to them, and he's assuring them in Christ, and he's going to share the abundance in Christ, but he's prodding them to realize that they should be singing about their amazing salvation. We are supposed to be praising him. So Peter did that and he shouted out in praise. And then he explains why in the world he would do that, pointing to the immense blessing of being connected to the kingdom of God. And I've kind of summarized it in a few statements we have from scripture, a living hope. It is a hope founded upon God's mercy. We are miserable sinners. If you're not sure of that, Then read the whole Bible through and you'll realize that you're a miserable sinner. That's our condition. That's who we are. And God in his mercy takes us from misery to glory. He changes our condition. As we said, when we come to the cross, it's not just something we get that we put in our pocket. Our identity changes. He removes the the identity of miserable sinner into glorified saint done by him. It is a hope that is alive. Kenneth Woost states this, not only living, but actively alive, an energizing principle of divine life in the believer. What does that mean? In less fancy words, it is a hope that is viable and real and changes our behavior. Peter is quick to move us saying, look, this is a a living, lively hope. This hope is not something you put in your pocket and do nothing with or just hold and keep as your own. This is something that is going to change who you are. Our world can only know dying hopes. There is only one living hope grounded in a living Savior. 
That's why he says, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You have a lively hope because Jesus rose from the grave. And the world around us has nothing. They have death. That's all they have. Or dying hope. You say, well, they're not hopeless. I see the world hoping in things. Yeah, but that hope doesn't have a risen Savior. It doesn't have life attached to it. It will ultimately die, which means we're given a lasting inheritance. <coughs> Peter points us now to what we have in heaven, and he, and he gives some words to describe it. One, it is incorruptible. It cannot be destroyed. What God has given to us, our salvation, our eternal life, it cannot be destroyed. It's imperishable. More than that, it's undefiled. It cannot be tainted. It can't be stained or polluted. It remains flawless and perfect. There's no upgrade to salvation. There is no 2.0. There's not a new plan. There's not flaws to take out of it. What we have in Christ is impossible to be destroyed and it's impossible to be polluted. It fadeth not. It cannot be diminished. It remains magnificent. It can't be polluted and it can't be lessened. MacArthur notes this, none of the decaying elements of the world can affect the kingdom of heaven. <clears throat> none of the ravages of time or the evils of sin can touch the believer's inheritance because it is in a timeless, sinless realm. Nothing messes with God's gift to us, our inheritance in Christ. It is guarded. He says it's reserved in heaven for you, kept by the power of God. Is that not comforting? I do not hold on to myself. I don't keep myself. He keeps me and he keeps my inheritance. Our inheritance is guarded, watched over in heaven. It will not change and it will not be stolen from us. And beyond our inheritance in Christ being guarded, he goes on in five to say, we ourselves are kept. We're protected. God is holding us safe, awaiting the return of our Savior and King. That's the salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The final fulfillment of God's purpose and, and plan for this world culminates in Christ's return, and we're kept for that. And so knowing the magnitude and magnificence of our salvation, understanding the immensity of his great mercy toward us, living out the only hope viable in this world, believers then cry out in joyful adoration, we are supposed to sing, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But let's have a moment of honesty. We often struggle to sing that out, don't we? We often struggle to say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be God. Blessed be Christ. Blessed be the Holy Spirit. We struggle to honestly cry out in adoration. Why? We wrestle with the pain and pressure of life and seem unable to praise him. You ever felt that? You read in scripture that you're supposed to praise him. Peter is writing to this church saying you need to praise him. And look, they weren't facing some slight little thing. It wasn't like, hey, you don't get steak tonight because you're a Christian. And we're talking about people ruining businesses. This is what persecution they're going to walk through. It gets even worse as the centuries unfold. But this is real pressure coming in. And so it can be hard to say, blessed be. Why is that? Because we lost sight of what we have in Christ. We lost sight of our great salvation accomplished in him. And when we do, it distorts our perspective. 
So where we're supposed to sing blessed, we can't because we're conflicted. We're afflicted in our mind and in our situations and our circumstances. And, and we feel like it blocks praise. And, and the solution is to shift your perspective and see it from his point of view. To recognize what you really have in Christ. We also struggle because we're distracted with the trinkets of this world. We're consumed with what we see here. And right away when I say trinkets, a bunch of you are like, well, my stuff isn't trinkets. And I know that's how we feel. That's why we get distracted with the trinkets of this world. I do as well. We get caught up in what this world has and how luxurious it feels and how amazing it is. And this is to take nothing away from good things and great food and, and all those components. But why can't we sing blessed be? Because we have so much junk, it distracts us from what is really valuable. We don't see our living hope and lasting inheritance because the view is blocked by the mountain of materialism standing in front of us. So when you find yourself not singing with Peter, blessed be, then your perspective and focus needs to realign. You see, Peter is going to build on this foundation. I love that about the way he approaches this. Before he gives it a command, he talks conversationally with the church is about salvation, about their assurance in Christ and the abundance they have in Christ. And he's going to continue moving through the faith all the way through uh, verse 12. He's going to talk about what Christ has done. He's going to talk about the prophets that haven't seen. He's going to tell us that we're going to have a joy in salvation even in the midst of tough times. He's going to build on this as he continues to instruct the church. He's going to call us to rejoice knowing that they know the Savior. Rejoice regardless of their circumstances and trials. Rejoice because they are God's children, secure and assured in Christ. And he wants them to see, we actually want to see them doing some things. One, he wants to see them attaching their identity to the cross and not to chance. How do you know you're in Christ? Because it's attached to the cross. If my identity in Christ rests on how well my finances are doing, well then... It's a shaky foundation, right? One problem, one loss. And look, we have very gifted individuals in our church, many who own businesses or, or skilled tradespeople. And so finances feel very secure. But you and I both know we're only a couple steps away from that being gone. And if your identity in Christ rests on you or the blessings that come with that, or what you perceive as the blessings, well, we fall into a Job situation, do we not? Where the friends come up and say, nothing good in your life, you must be lost. And so Peter says, I want to see you attaching your identity to the cross, and not to chance or circumstances in life. He wants to see them knowing the only living hope viable in this life, a hope that energizes, believer, energizes the believer and changes their behavior. You're attached to a living hope, then you're going to act different. You're going to do differently. If you are attached to a dying hope that's in this world, well, then I expect you to act like the world. That's what Peter's saying. But we aren't living in that hope. We live with a live, a live hope, the only live hope. And that's going to change our behavior. And he wants to see them possessing a lasting inheritance, one that cannot be tainted or destroyed, secured forever in heaven by our redeeming God. And so here's the cry for us. Let's sing boldly with Peter of God's great salvation. Peter wanted to drive this church, honestly, in the midst of being persecuted for being saved, for being God's people. And he wants to tell them, why don't you sing out about that? 
Why don't you tell the world around you about that? The same thing they're punching in the face about or taking your business away for. Why don't you sing about God's great salvation and be assured that our security rests in him and what God has abundantly provided for his children? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to open the book of First Peter, this letter that was written to the churches, churches that were in very similar circumstances to what we face, uh, not necessarily in full-on um, murder and killed, but they were facing the, the, the pressure from the world government that said, we're not neutral about Christianity anymore. We live in the United States. It is the strongest nation in the world, yet it is no longer neutral to Christianity. We see the pressure in, in exactly all the realms, academics to media to politics. There's a negativity attached to trusting in Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins. It's a negativity attached to believing and serving him. There's a negativity attached to following his word. We see that attacked, and so we can recognize the pressure that comes in. And so it's going to be tempting for us to shift our identity to change what it means to be identified in you, to tack it securely to the cross. As we face that around us, Peter is reminding us, you are assured in Christ. This world cannot take away from you what God has given to you. They cannot remove your redemptive act, your sacrificial act on the cross. They cannot take away our salvation, no matter how nasty they get, no matter how difficult it may become, no matter how many doubts pop in our mind, no matter how, how many times our brain is afflicted with thoughts, no matter what, we are secure in you. And we recognize the abundance that you give us. Help fix our, our eyes to what is lasting and what is living. Keep us focused on being your ambassador, of serving you, of, of bringing about your purpose. We're called to glorify you. We're called to proclaim the gospel, that there is hope only found in Jesus Christ. We call on the world. We proclaim uh, their need to repent and believe. And we pray that your spirit will convict their hearts and work on them, knowing, fully assured that he does. Help us remain resting on you, but also from that position, proclaiming you. In your precious and holy name, amen.